Amen. Amen. Let's get our Bibles out. And we're going to jump back into our study of Galatians today. We are in Galatians chapter 5. So you can grab your Bible or you can grab the Bible out of the pew rack in front of you and open to page 1340. You'll find Galatians chapter 5 there. I, As I believe I said last week, I'm very much looking forward to studying with you through Galatians 5. It's going to be a very exciting uh, chapter of this amazing book. God's done so much in our lives and our hearts over the last several months as we've studied together. And we will begin next week a journey through uh, the, the, the passage of uh, the fruit of the Spirit. And so that's going to be a very exciting time that we'll have. So while we're uh, in our connect groups and we're going through the AHA curriculum, I'll be preaching through uh, Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to put the last piece uh, of the puzzle together before we move into that study. And we're going to talk a little bit about goodbye fear, hello love. Goodbye fear, hello love. Now you remember that the book of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to churches that are found in Galatia. And basically what's happened is Paul has taken the gospel out to these unreached regions and uh, he's told them the gospel and they've become Christians and they've started churches and this is all brand new to them. These churches are filled with people who had no prior uh encounter with God. They were all pagan people on the outside looking in. They were not, uh, for the most part, Jewish people. And so they, they got saved. They started churches. Things are going great. But then shortly after Paul departed and went on to plant other churches, some religious people came in, some false teachers who were fond of religion, and they started teaching uh, these rules that they 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 didn't have the liberty that Paul told them that they had and that they needed to start following these rules for, that had always been followed since the Old Testament and that Christ had had come, but he didn't really change anything. It's just added on top of what was already there. And so that's sort of the the context of what we've been talking about. We we call this this rule-driven religion. We call that legalism. And so now Paul is making sure that before we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, before we talk about the, the undeniable markings of those who are genuinely saved and, and children of the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants us to know for sure not only the dangers of legalism, uh, on the front end and the back end, but also what is this liberty that we've been called to? What, what is, how do we live in this? What, what does it mean to be free in Christ? And so that's where we are this morning. So let me pray and then we'll begin reading in Galatians 5. Father, we thank you this morning for the freedom for which you came and set us free. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and God for the salvation that comes only through him. And Lord, we have been led in worship this morning. And Father, we thank you for the blessing of uh, just the song and 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 worshiping you and Lord, we know that you're here among us and now, Father, as we turn to your word, help us to realize not only how extraordinary it is that we as human beings not only know that the God of the universe exists and that you 
care about us and love us, but that you have spoken to us. And so, Lord, now we look at your words to us. They're perfect and they're meant for us. And God, help us to, to push everything else aside and just focus on what you have to say this morning. How tremendous is it that the King of kings and the Lord of lords has spoken to us. And so now, Lord, we ask you to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5. Let's begin reading in verse 7. Paul says to the Galatians, You ran well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you might have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, then why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Now we'll stop there. This passage here is Paul's sort of final stake in the ground before he proceeds into this deep conversation about the marks of Christianity. But he wants us to, to realize that there's more going on here than just what you might read on the surface. Um, these, these ideas, these legalistic tendencies, these, these rules and regulations that are man-centered, that, that people are being condemned and guilted into following, have terrible, drastic consequences. And, you know, we have uh, tendencies towards legalism. All you have to do to, to really be reminded of that or to see that clearly is uh, you can go on the Internet and you can look at uh, a website called dumblaws.com. And then you can click on Mississippi and you can find that there's all these dumb laws in Mississippi that have been on the books forever and ever and ever. Some of them maybe aren't even that old and it's just sort of crazy uh, why they say what they say. Now, I found one or two that I thought weren't dumb. Like, for example, in the state of Mississippi, it's against the law to disrupt a church service. Amen? That's $500 and six months in jail. Just in case you were thinking about getting a little antsy this morning. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's illegal in the state of Mississippi, according to state law 97-29-55, for a man to seduce a woman by lying to her and claiming that he will marry her. Now, that's, it, it says here that he'll be imprisoned in the penitentiary for not more than five years, but the testimony of the female seduced alone is not sufficient to warrant a conviction. Okay, we're just going to let that go. It's illegal in the state of Mississippi. Uh, cattle rustling is illegal in the state of Mississippi. That's good to know because I was going to be doing that next weekend, but I'm not now because I didn't know. Then you can also look up city laws in the state of Mississippi. And uh, I couldn't find any 
crazy things about Gulfport, but in my search, I found a couple that I had to bring to your attention. For example, in Oxford, Mississippi, it is illegal. There is a law, and it says, I quote, you may not cheer unless there is a reason to. (laughs) So does that mean Ole Miss fans just never cheer? Oh, Philip is in here. I'm oh, sorry, brother. I'm I, sorry. Sorry. Suddenly his head pokes in the door. See, you know, how that... in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, this is probably the craziest one I found. Hazelhurst, Mississippi. What is going on in Hazelhurst? They have a law on the books that says you may not fish using an Uzi. What redneck has got an Uzi and out in a pond fishing? I don't know. I don't know. Now, as ridiculous as all that is and true, what I'm about to tell you is also equally as ridiculous and also equally true, I'm sad to say. that What happened is, through the course of time, uh, as, as the Old Testament progressed and as men just began to sort of take religion and twist it and tangle it around... The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they began to uh, spend all their time studying the Old Testament. And rather than just studying God's Word and learning all the wonderful truths in it and the way that it can change your life, they began to analyze it and take it apart. And they found out that there was 248 uh, commandments, according to them. And they also isolated 365 prohibitions. And so they decided that it was their calling to keep all 613 of these rules. And so that's what they began trying to do. Well, you you can predict how this went. It obviously was problematic, didn't go well. They started struggling because what happened was the same thing that happens to us. Somebody would break the rule and someone someone else would say, hey, you broke the rule. And then they would say, well, no, I didn't. The rule doesn't mean that. The rule means this. And so then they would start arguing back and forth about what the rule made. So they got back together and they decided, well, how are we going to solve this problem? I know we're going to make more rules about the rules. And so they got together and they took the 613 rules and they wrote 1,500 new rules on how to keep the 600 rules that they were originally trying to keep. Now, this was put together in a book called the Mishnah. And all 1,500 rules are in there. It's sort of the oral tradition or the oral code of the Jewish religion. And so they put that together in the Mishnah and then time went on. And of course, that was obviously even more problematic because not only now did you have to try to keep up with all this, but then there was even more argumentation about how to keep the 1,500 rules in the Mishnah. So then they made more rules. And so what they did was they, they constructed a new book and it was a commentary on the Mishnah. It was called the Gemara. And so they took that book and it's a commentary on how to keep the rules in the Mishnah and they put all that together and that's what makes up, maybe some of you have heard of the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud. It's this giant book of half of it is all rules and the other half is how to keep those rules, all of which are just made up by man. And so it just got ridiculous and totally out of hand. And this is sort of the culture that Jesus encounters when He comes 
to earth. It's, it's, he, he comes to a place and time where things are just spinning totally out of control. Now, some of the things that they would do, for example, I want you to take note as I go through these, I want you to take note at where their focus is. Okay? They're so concerned about keeping the rules that, for example, they take the commandment that says, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, and they decided that to, in order to ensure that they didn't break that rule, they never said the Lord's name at all. They didn't say His name in prayer. They didn't say His name in worship. They didn't sing His name. They just never said it that way. They would never break it. They uh, created a law uh, where the Pharisees, whenever they were walking along and a woman passed them, that the, they would have to look down at the ground because if they looked at a woman's face, they might be tempted to lust. And so... They were always walking around looking down, and then they created these special <clears throat> levels of holiness, one of which was to be noted as a bleeding Pharisee. And what was happening was they were looking down so much, they were running into stuff, and so they were all bloody. I know you think I'm making this up, but I'm not. This is... They were so concerned about not violating the Sabbath to rest on the Sabbath. So they had to decide, well, what constitutes work? So they got together and one of the laws they made was on the Sabbath, you could take no more than 50 steps. So you had to keep count of your steps all day and make sure it was less than 50 because if it exceeded 50, it was considered labor. On the Sabbath, you could not eat because it was a holy day, but you, you, you could not cook, but you could eat. So I don't know what you were supposed to eat, but you can't cook, but you could eat. If you encountered a person who had been wounded on the Sabbath, it was permissible to bandage them, but it was considered a sin to give them medicine. In other words, listen, a woman on the Sabbath was not allowed to look in the mirror. Now, you could really go somewhere with this. The reason that she's not allowed to look in the mirrors because she may see a gray hair and then be tempted to pluck it out, which constitutes work. You see how insane things get? And listen, people are trapped in this legalism. And what I said last week or two weeks ago when we talked about this is that essentially legalism is my worth is based on what I do or don't do for God. And what happens is you have people who, in some sense, in many senses, they want to be pleasing to God, and they think that this is how they're supposed to do it, and it just starts to spin out of control, and it just begins to destroy everything. Now, what Paul's going to show us here in, in this portion of uh, Galatians 5 is that legalism has two devious, wicked sides. In other words, you know, he's so he's so forceful and so... You know, just you, you can almost sense how upset he is about what's going on. He says in verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. That's a reference to castration. Now, guys, aren't you glad that I, that was the next text? I could have preached that on Father's Day. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. Today, we're going to be talking about castration. I'm just saying it was the next text. See? But he is upset. Why? Why is he upset? Well, there's 
the lie of legalism that comes at the front end, and then there's the lure of legalism that comes on the back end. The lie is is what affects those who haven't come to Christ, and the lure is how legalism pollutes those who are already in Christ. So legalism hurts everyone, those in Christ and those who haven't come to Christ. You see, the lie on the front end is, it says, well, you have to get your act together before you can come to Christ in a relationship. What happens is, is that can you imagine as all this is going on and all these laws are enforced and they've got, you know, 600 laws and then 1,500 more laws. And so if you were just a common person and you were sort of watching all of this go on, well, you would just think, well, there's no way God's ever going to accept me. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, I can't, there's, I can't keep all these laws. And what about all the things that I've done wrong? And it's just not going to work out. And so people would come to the conclusion, whether they were told that inadvertently or directly, that you've got to get good before you can get God. And I meet people all the time that, that today they think that they've got, to, they've got to get fixed before they can get forgiven, that they've got to clean their self up. They've got to get things together before they can come to Christ, which is the opposite of what the Bible says, that that's not how it works. You, you, don't, you don't clean yourself up first. I mean... You know, if you have ever heard anybody say, you know, I I would like to follow Jesus. I would like to be a Christian. I, I envy those people that I know that I see that are Christians and genuinely living for Christ. But I got a lot of things in my life I got to get together. Well, yeah, so do all of us. And, and we didn't we didn't get things together first and then come to Christ. We came to Christ and he got them together. You see, the Bible says, so here's what Jesus says about this lie on the front end, this lie that keeps people out. Matthew 23, verse 13. Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They actually... Keep people from Christ. They repel people from becoming Christians because they defeat them and they think that they can't ever live up to it. They can't add up. They can't make it. You see, it it all begins with this shift into Christianity becoming not a relationship, but it's like a code of conduct that at the core of this belief is this uh, is that. Christianity, it begins externally. That all of these laws and all these regulations and all of these things, they're external. They're external. They're all things on the outside. And so what happens is people look at this and they think about this or, or this idea is planted in their head and they just think, well, I mean, this isn't going to work. I mean, I've tried to live right and I just keep failing and I, I've tried to change and I keep failing and They just get defeated and they get discouraged and they just give up. You see, the lie says that transformation comes before relationship. And that simple shift from the reality that no, relationship comes first. It's the relationship that transforms you. But if you switch those two things, you just alienate everybody from Christ because none of us are capable of transforming ourselves. So then no one is going to Come to Christ. But yet the gospel comes along and says, for example, in Ephesians 2, 
It's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works that God saves us himself as a gift to us that we didn't earn it. We didn't fix ourselves or clean ourselves up or do anything to to make things right. And so the gospel comes along and exposes that lie of legalism. Now, that's on the front end. Now, let's talk about the back end. Let's talk about the lure of legalism. Jesus says about the lure of legalism in Luke eleven forty six. He says, Woe to you also, teachers of the law, for you load men with burdens hard to bear. You know what they do? They would people, they, that's what they were doing in Galatia. They would go into these churches, these young Christians, and they were just loading them up with all these burdens and all these rules and all these regulations, and they, they couldn't bear them. They couldn't hardly stand under them. I mean, it was just too much. And there are churches today that are just filled with people that are loaded up with all these burdens. And they've, they're, they're, many of them are saved people, but they've lost the gospel in this sea of man-made rules and regulations. And what happens is it kills your heart. It crushes your spirit. It robs all the joy out of your life. And the beauty of Christianity is replaced with this sort of competitive, sort of rule-keeping game. It, it's, it's such a perversion of the gospel. The Bible addresses this also in Luke 16, where Jesus says, well, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Notice again, it's this external nature. But God knows your hearts. See, Jesus is trying to point them in inwardly. He said, no, you're focused on the outside. You need to understand the inside for what is highly esteemed among, among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He said, you think you're so great because you can keep all these rules and that you're better than everyone else, but it's an abomination to God because God looks at the heart. Verse 16, he says, the law and the prophets were until John, speaking of John the Baptist, that when the New Testament begins and John the Baptist is on the scene, it's a, it's a new time, something new. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. And since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Now, what does that mean? Let me, let me just explain this to you, maybe in a simplistic way so that all of you understand what I'm talking about. Because I, I'm sure that if we took some time individually and I asked you or, or maybe someone that you work with says, well, what's the deal? I mean, are, are, do you, are you supposed to follow the Old Testament? Do you just ignore the Old Testament? Why is the Old Testament there? What does all this mean? How does all this work? Well, think of it this way. God, in His wisdom, decides that He is going to create man. He's going to create man in his own image. He's going to create something especially for his glory. He's going to create uh, man for relationship with him. So he creates perfection. He puts man and woman in perfection to live in utter and complete perfection in fellowship with him. Everything is as it's according to be. And everything's fine. And then sin enters in, which obliterates and pollutes perfection. And so now this creation that God has created, that he wants relationship with, that he made in his own image, is now living in a, in a bent, broken environment that's not as it was intended. So then God comes along and says, okay, these people right here, he just picks 
the Israelites. He says, here's a group of people I'm going to make my own and I'm going to start this redemptive process and I'm going to show all the world what it is I'm all about. And so he picks these people and he makes them distinctly different. He frees them first. He makes sure that they know that he's God by all the miraculous things that he does. Once he's done that, he's freed them. They know for sure that he's God because only God could do the things that he'd done. He says, now that that's all accomplished, Here's how you were originally intended to live. So he doesn't come up with the Ten Commandments like, here's the Ten Commandments like a giant sledgehammer over your head. He's saying, here's the Ten Commandments because this is how I created you to live. And you need to live this way. And so they started trying to live this way. Well, of course, none of us in here can follow the Ten Commandments perfectly, nor could they. And so he created a system by which they could... Uh, of sacrifices and various things within this ceremonial law so that the world would know these were His people. And all of the ceremonial law about how they would dress and what they could eat and all the different specific ways in which they would, you know, interact with one another, which at the beginning of that was circumcision, which made them different from all the other people on the world, which is why this issue of circumcision keeps coming up in Galatians because that's step one and then all these other things come. And so God creates this, this system of sacrifices. Now, why? Well, because, first of all, the, the, the law, the ceremonial law, set these people apart from all the other people on earth. That and when you read the Old Testament, every time the people of God march into a new place, all the other people have already heard of them. And they go, oh, we've heard of you. We've heard of your God. We, because you're weird. You do all this weird stuff and your God is even weirder. Like he blows things up and makes seas part and drops food out of the sky. And so we're a little bit scared because you're different. And so they show up different. And the other thing is, is that all of every time they would fail and they would sin, they would have this sacrificial system because God wants them to. He's preparing them for the ultimate sacrifice. He's he's teaching us through the ceremonial law, that sacrifice is necessary for sin. And all of that is just a picture of that which is going to come. So now you sort of understand how we got here. Well, then Jesus comes along and says, well, now the law and the prophets were until John. So things are starting to change. Now, we're not throwing out the Old Testament. What we're doing is we're saying that we're no longer bound by the ceremonial law. We're no longer bound by the ceremonial law. But what about the moral law of God? What about the Ten Commandments? Do you think that God's morals changed when Jesus came? Well, of course not. What God deemed in the Ten Commandments to be good and right and the way He intended for people to live never changes. It's always the same. In other words, just like in the Garden of Eden, no one was, you know, there's no lying and there's no stealing and there's no adultery and there's no, that was his intention. Well, that's his intention in the Ten Commandments. That's his intention today. So his moral law doesn't change. But we no longer are bound by the ceremonial law because none of those things are, they've been nullified by Jesus. Why? Well, because first of all, if the first reason for the ceremonial law was to separate us from all other people. Well, that's nullified because now in Christ, the gospel is not relegated to this one group of people. It's to the whole world. So now 
We're not, the church is worldwide and God's people are spread over every nation, tribe and tongue. And so we are now all over the earth. You see, the gospel has been freed from that. Okay. Second of all, if the ceremonial law was to teach them that sin had to be paid by sacrifice, then Jesus is that fulfillment. He is the permanent sacrifice for sin. That's why we don't have to slaughter bulls and sprinkle blood on altars and all those things. And so hopefully you understand that the law has got a very intentional purpose. And God's moral standards for us never change. They never change. What changes is the way we respond to God's moral standards for us. For what God, the way we now live is very different from the way the Old Testament saints lived to do the things that God created us to always do. Now let me show you a little bit about that. Um, for example, in the Old Testament, in, in Galatia, the reason that these the Jewish people are so frustrated with Paul is that in the Old Testament, the only way to restrain sin was rules. It was the only way. Have you ever noticed that if you're reading the Old Testament, for example, it's harsh, man. I mean, you, you most crimes are punishable by stoning, by death. I mean, it is rough. You know why? To detour sin, to, to keep people from sinning. So people didn't sin out of fear because it was, it was very harsh. And so they responded to the, the God's intention for them in fear. And that's how they lived. And so the Jews had spent their whole life growing up in this system of fear. And that if you didn't have rules, everyone was going to run amok and go crazy. And you know what? That's exactly what would happen. Is that in the Old Testament, half the time they went crazy even when there was rules. And so they knew that you needed rules or things were going to go nuts. Paul comes in and says, hey, guess what? Jesus came, paid the penalty for your sin. You have liberty in Christ now. You've been, you've been forgiven of all your sin, all the sin you've ever committed, all the sin you ever will commit. You're secure in Christ and you have freedom and liberty and you don't have to follow all those ceremonial laws. And the first thing the religious people think is, hold on. You can't do that. Everyone's going to go nuts. There's a lot of Christians that think, wait a minute, you can't do that. Everyone's going to go crazy. And so understand why they think that. They think that because it used to be that way, but it's not that way anymore. Why is it not? So has God just said, okay, here's what we can do. Now Jesus has come. He's paid the penalty of all your sin. And now everything's forgiven. So don't worry about everybody going crazy. It's fine. It's all forgiven. Well, no. No. What did he do? What did Jesus do when he departed? He gave us a helper. He gave us the Holy Spirit. That's why Second Thessalonians calls the Holy Spirit the restrainer. That we have something that the Old Testament saints didn't have. They had to have rules to try to keep them in line, which didn't work most of the time. We don't need ceremonial rules because we have the Holy Spirit within us that leads us and guides us and directs us. We have God's morality inside of us living. And so therefore, we don't run amok and go crazy because we have the Holy Spirit. Now, 
do the, do the people in Galatia fully understand this? Well, no, not really. They're getting it. That's why Paul keeps saying, remember, how did you become a Christian in the first place? Wasn't it by the Spirit? And now you've abandoned the Spirit? That's why he keeps bringing the Spirit into this discussion. And so he needs to clarify to them, do you not only understand that legalism destroys things on the front end by its lies, it destroys things on the back end by the lure to slip into it, that every single person in this room is in danger of slipping into legalism, no matter how long you've been in Christ, if you don't guard your heart against it. But then the bigger question is, what is liberty? What does that mean? And that's what he's going to answer. Look at verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, he says. Well, liberty, how? What do you mean, liberty? Well, liberty in the sense that the God who made us in his image and who loves us has now placed his spirit, the Holy Spirit, inside of us to keep us from running amok, to to free us from this uh, self-destruction that we've, we've always lived in. You see, God has changed the way that we respond to everything. Everything about Him. To all of His... You see, don't think of God's morality as rules. That, that is really just missing the whole point here. God is saying to you and me, saying, listen, this is how you were intended to live. This is what is best for you. Do you know how most of us got here? Most of us got here because we tried to do it our way. And we learned the hard way that rejecting what God says is best for us will inevitably lead us to catastrophe. That when we deviate, when we when God says, you know what, you shouldn't do this, and we go, well, I don't believe that, I'm going to do it anyway, it hurts, and it tears apart, and it breaks us down. And we get to a place where we realize, you know what, I've just destroyed my life. And then somebody comes along, and hopefully they don't say, well, what you got to do is get your life fixed up, and then you can come to Christ. Hopefully, somebody who's a Christian, who knows the gospel, says to him, listen, that's why Jesus came, is to resolve all that. So that you can come to Him in relationship. And through that relationship, you can be restored. And He'll begin to transform you. And so the way that you respond to God's morality, God's parameters of saying, here's freedom. Freedom is live in the parameters of what was intended for you. You see, only Satan could spin a plan to where so many people would actually think that God's moral law for you and me is constraining. That is the most utterly insane understanding of God's moral law that you could ever come up with. The Bible says it's liberating. The Bible says it's the truth that sets us free. Now, how does that... It doesn't sound free when you're outside of of Christ because you think, well, how am I free? I used to be able to do all these things and now I can't do them anymore. Well... Not exactly. You used to be able to do all these things and look at what happened when you did. And now 
You have a helper inside of you to help you do the things you're supposed to be doing so that you can just be free and enjoy the life that God's given you the way He intended for it to be. That there's freedom in Christ. There's freedom in Christ. You see, the the Old Testament had people who lived in fear of penalty. The New Testament, we live in faith in a person. That's the difference. The moral code of God has not changed. What His blueprint for, for success as a human being has not changed one bit, nor will it ever change. But the way we relate to it and respond to it has changed. So hopefully that clears that up for you, okay? Let me use a, a, a common illustration that I, I say this to myself all the time because I, I see it all the time and... I'll be driving down the road. It happens in my neighborhood all the time. You know, I I live in a little cul-de-sac neighborhood, so there's only one way in, one way out. So basically everybody knows everybody that lives in there. And so if anybody's in there that doesn't live there, everybody knows that too. I remember one time after Katrina, when everything was chaotic, uh, Wade rode his Harley over to my house to check on me. And uh, they stopped him at the entrance. And they're like, what do you think you're doing in here? And he said, he said, oh, I'm going to see Pastor Tony. And they're like, sure you are. But here's what happens. I'll see, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple young guys that live in my neighborhood. And they're real fit and trim and, you know, muscular. And they'll, they like to jog around the neighborhood. And so they'll be out there jogging, you know, with their shirt off and looking all smooth right in there, you know, making the rest of us just hate them. So they're out there doing that. And then there'll be this middle-aged pot belly guy with his sweat rag over his shoulder. And he's limping along in the heat and sweat's pouring off him, right? And now the young guy, he's... Smiling and happy and tan and, you know, he's drinking protein shakes and eating, you know, grilled chicken and salmon. And he's just, man, he's just loving it. Now, the old guy, the sweaty guy, he's miserable and he don't smile and he's just trying to get to the end of his little routine and uh, he knows that when he gets home, all he's got to look forward to, his wife's got boiled chicken and raw vegetables and he's just you know, totally disgruntled in a spirit of envy over fried chicken. And so now both of them are doing something that is beneficial for them. Both of them are exercising, which is good. And both of them are eating well, which is good. But they're experiencing those things in very different ways. Why? Because the young man is healthy. And he's doing that because he wants to and because he likes it. We got a bunch of young guys here and they're like, yeah, Pastor, I just ran a triathlon and I climbed Mount Everest and I, and I'm, you know, and we're all like, what is wrong with you? Right? Because they enjoy it. And that's why they're smiling when they're out there doing it. But the old guy with the pot belly and the sweat rag, he's only out there because his doctor said, look here, son. You either start exercising and eating right or you're going to have a heart attack and die. One is out there for the joy of it. He doesn't, he's out there because he wants to be out there. The other one's out there because he has to be out there. 
They're doing the same thing. They're obeying the same truth, but they're experiencing it in very different ways. That's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That Old Testament believers related to the law like an old guy with a sweat rag. And in the New Testament, we respond to God's law like a young man who's tan and built. Right. Okay. Amen. That's my illustration. You can figure that out any way you want to. So that's the difference is the motivation. You see, a New Testament believer, if 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 an Old Testament saint walked in right now and I was able to bring him up here and interview him, here's how the conversation would go. He would be baffled by the way we do the things we do, like he, he would say, how do you do that? I mean, and you're so joyful and you're so, I mean, he, man, he had to struggle and he lived in constant fear as he was working to obey all these regulations. And yet you have this freedom. It's just astonishing and astounding. He would probably convict our hearts in the way he would be so amazed at the greatness of Jesus and all the, oh, how amazing it is that you get to live in this time and, and you get to live in the, under the blood of Christ. What a gift that is. Do you realize how valuable that is? But you see, we, we sometimes take it for granted because that's all we know. And that's what Paul is, is driving at here. He's teaching us that, listen, Christian liberty, Christian liberty is, is the freedom The freedom to live as God intended for us to live with the restrainer built in so that we're not motivated by fear, but we're motivated by love. Love motivates us. We cannot get over how much God loved us that he sent his son to be the permanent sacrifice for us that we no longer have to live like Old Testament people and we can be free. That's why the truth of that will set you free. So it begs the question now, well, what is Christian liberty not? Because that's exactly what Paul goes directly into to make sure that you don't think it's something that it's not. He, he says Christian liberty is, it's not freedom from sin. Or it's not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. That you don't respond to liberty and say, well, then I can just do anything I want to do. I can just go out there and just be self-destructive all over again. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, you've been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And by the flesh, he means the sinful nature, the, the part of us that's inside of us, the natural man that's unredeemed, that always wants to do that, which is bad for us. It's that. Now, as God's child, Just think about everything I've said this morning. If you have been rescued from your sin and you are a son or a daughter of God, that that you have been your sin has been forgiven and, and price paid by the by his son on the cross. If that's you. Then. Do you think that God would somehow intend to pay the ultimate price to forgive your sin so that you could then go out and, and just further damage and destroy yourself? Would that be love? Well, of course not. Of course not. Anyone who says, hey, I'm a Christian, I know I'm forgiven, I can do anything I want to, so... Well, that is moronic. 
How could that possibly be God's plan? Again, his morals haven't changed. What's good for you hasn't changed. He, he goes another step. He doesn't give you freedom so you can hurt yourself. He gives you freedom and then puts built inside of you his spirit to guide and direct you to prevent you from hurting yourself. And every time as a Christian we sin, certain things happen. Number one, that show us his love. Number one, we grieve the Holy Spirit. When we sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. That's why Christians, we don't, it's sin is different for us than it used to be before we were saved. That sin, it just makes you sick. It just makes you ill. You just, you're just like, ah, I can't believe that I did that again. Why do I do that? We feel this conviction inside. It's because the spirit of God is grieved and he's convicting us. And then we, even when we when we think like I think you know I'm going to sin, then God begins to work to prevent us from doing that. But something else happens when we sin; we suffer consequences for our sin. And why? God lifts the penalty of sin and forgiveness, but He doesn't lift the consequences because it's loving. Otherwise, we would hurt ourselves. If you touched the pan and it was hot and it didn't burn you, you, we'd be covered with burns. But it burns us, therefore we don't touch it anymore because that hurts. Because it's not good for us to touch hot things. And so God leaves the consequences upon us as a reminder that He loves us and that that's not wise and good. Don't do that. So don't you see, it's, it's not freedom... To run amok. It's freedom to live as God intended. But how do we exercise this liberty? Well, he answers that question next. He goes, you've been called to liberty, but don't use this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But how do you exercise it? Through love, serve one another. The best evidence of grace in a person's life is love. That what happens when faith takes hold of your life is that when you become a child of God, you begin to live in the grace of God, you are overwhelmed by God's love for you and then love begins to come out of you and go to other people. Now, Old Testament saints, they loved, but they loved in different ways. There's levels of love, like for example, or levels of obedience. You can, you can obey out of fear. That's the first level. Or you can, the second level would be you can obey for a reward. That's uh, the parenting level. And uh, so you can obey because you're afraid. You can obey for a reward. But ultimately, the highest level of obedience is to obey out of love. It's to do something for someone else just because you love them. You love them. You see, to bless your wife because she... You love her and for her to bless you because she loves you and to bless your children because you love them and to be a blessing to other people because you love them because God has loved you. And so that's how you exercise that liberty. Think of it this way. Liberty is played out in our life by us being able to say that I am free to love others because I've been loved. I'm free to love others because I'm so loved. You see that I'm not trying to cling to all my love because I have so much I can give it away. Jesus says to us in John chapter 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you. Why is it a new commandment? Because it's new. He's like, this is new that you love one another as I've loved you. You see, now that I've loved you in this way, now you're free to love each other. Now, Paul goes on. He starts talking about how uh, for 
All the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself in verse 14. I want to clarify a couple things. First of all, there's a difference between loving yourself and self-love. Those are two different things. And we need to make sure that we're clear. Self-love. That is infatuation with yourself. That's standing in front of the mirror singing how great thou art. That's not good. Okay? That's bad. That's just wandering around all day admiring your selfies. That's problematic. Okay? That's self-love. Loving yourself, when the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself, that's seeing yourself as God sees you. When you see yourself as God sees you, when you see yourself as lovable and loved as God sees you, then you're free to love other people. That way, you can then love others as you've been loved. That's what that means. Now, I read a story that illustrated this. Several years ago in Athens, Texas, there was a big hubbub on the, in the media about the local county courthouse had this big nativity scene. Some of you sort of know about all this. It made national headlines. They put a nativity scene out and it caused a bunch of problems. And there was an organization, uh, Freedom From Religion, I believe it was called, out of Wisconsin that filed a lawsuit against them that telling them that they had to remove the, the nativity scene. And there was this man named Patrick Green who lived in San Antonio, Texas. And he uh, took offense to the nativity scene. And he was going around, you know, uh, saying that he was going to sue the city for it and that he was an atheist and that he didn't think that that was right and so on and so forth. And there was this big commotion about all this. Well, the media, in the course of all this, began to report things about Patrick Green. And they reported that Patrick Green had previously been a cab driver and that he had uh, become ill, that he, he, his, he had a cataract situation with his eyes and he had, was losing his vision and he lost his job. He could no longer work and he had health problems, but he didn't have any health insurance. And so that was sort of the situation of this guy who was causing all these problems for the, the city of Athens. Well, a girl by the name of Jessica Cry. She's a young lady who attends a church. The church was Sand Springs Baptist Church. She heard about the things that were going on in Patrick's life. And I'm sure that a lot of people that heard that, a lot of Christians that heard that he had lost his job and was losing his sight, they probably said, you know, that's what he deserves. That's what he gets for, you know, how dare him sue the city over this. But that's not what Jessica Cry did. Jessica Cry thought, here's an opportunity for us to be a blessing to Patrick Green. And so she went to her church and her and her church decided they were going to raise money to help Mr. Green. Here's her quote. She says, I knew of his lawsuit and the threats that he had made. And I thought how sad it was for him to be so bitter towards Christians. I thought he must have never felt the love of God through Christians. And this is a great opportunity for us to turn the other cheek and show God's love. And so she got with her church and they raised several thousands of dollars and they sent it to Mr. Green and his wife to help him with his medical bills. Here's his reaction. Mr. Green said, 
I quote, I was completely flabbergasted because Christians had always treated me like dirt because of my atheistic beliefs. They said that they wanted the, the Christians from Jessica's church, that they wanted to do what was real, what real Christians are supposed to do, which is love you. And they wanted to help. Now, not only did Mr. Green stop his lawsuit, but in 2012, the very next Christmas, he purchased a giant star that lights up to go on the top of the tree for the nativity scene at the courthouse. And Mr. Green not only got saved and became a Christian, but now he wants to be a pastor. Now, this is the point I'm making. This is what happens when the gospel takes hold of your life. That's Christian liberty. That's rejecting legalism. Notice how Paul ends this in 14 and 15. He says, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that's what they did. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. You see, they chose not to do this. They chose to love him as God loves them. And look at what happened. One last thing and then we'll be done. There's an interesting place in Exodus 21 where God's laying out the law that I think will help you bridge the gap. Will help you see how God is an unchanging God. The only thing that changes is the way and the power in which we respond to Him. In Exodus 21, as the law is being laid out, there's a passage that says this beginning in verse 1. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. So Moses is going to set these before the people. If you buy a Hebrew servant, then he shall serve for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free and pay nothing. And if he comes in by himself, then he shall go out by himself. And if he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. So in other words, a slave would come and serve for six years. And on the seventh year, he would go free. And if a slave came and already had a wife, then that wife would serve six years. And then they would both go free because that was the law. Verse 4. But if the master has given him a wife, in other words, while he was in the master's care, and she were to bore him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be the master's, and he shall go out by himself until the wife finishes her six years. Are you with me? But, verse 5, if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorposts, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now, do you see the picture there? That a servant would serve his time six years, and on the seventh year he could go free. But if he chose, he could... Say, I don't want to go free. I want to continue to serve my master. And so the law said, well, then you take him and you pierce his ear as a permanent reminder that he was set free, but chose to continue to serve for love of the master. 
You see, the, the duty that the servant performed never changed. You realize he went back to doing the same job that he'd always done? The difference is that now he didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. What changes is the motivation. When the master is loving and gracious and kind, when you realize that what the Bible is, is God's way of saying, here's here's from the mouth of the one who created you. Don't rail against my moral code. It's for your blessing and benefit. You realize how good the master is and you don't obey out of fear. You then obey out of love for the master. And when you do that, there's freedom. There's joy and there's peace and there's comfort and the fruit of the spirit begin to pour out of your life. That's what Christian liberty is. That's why Jesus came to set us free. We're free this morning. Free to live as God intended. He loves you. And even in the Old Testament law, he's saying, I love you. I love you. I know what's best for you. And if you'll just listen to me, come unto me, you'll see. You'll see that my ways will prosper you and you will find joy in the face of the adversity that is crushing you apart from me. Well, let's stand and bow our heads. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us in your word. Thank you, Father, for helping us this morning to see clearly why you gave the law, what the law is for, what it, what it has accomplished over thousands of years and why you have never changed and what you see as good and right for the people that you love so much that you created in your image. And Lord, this morning we celebrate the reality that the restrainer is within us, that the Holy Spirit has come, that every person who enters into your family under the shed blood of Jesus Christ is indwelt by your very power to protect us and keep us, that we're not under the tyranny and the threat, and the fear of law. God, I pray today for anyone who's here who maybe believes the lie that they've got to fix themselves before they can come to You. Lord, that this morning they have seen clearly that that is not the case and that relationship precedes transformation. That it's when we come to You the transformation comes, Lord. Thank You for clearing that up for us. God, I pray for anyone here who is in Christ and yet has lost their joy and their zeal for you. And the lure of legalism has sucked the the blessing out of being a, a child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That the enemy, the voice in their head has convinced them that they are such a failure and that you don't love them. How could you love them? That's not true. And Father, we thank you for that. And Lord, thank you for the liberty that you've saved us to. The liberty to live as we are loved, God, to love others and to serve others, to be your hands and feet. And Lord God, to to know that you are with us, never leave us, never forsake us. God, thank you for that this morning.
And so, Lord, you know the need of every heart. You know the challenges that are in this room, God. So will you do what only you can do? God, give us the courage to say, I need the Lord. I need Him. And to respond to that or to say, I, I, I know that God's calling me to plant my life right here in this church and be a part of what God's doing. Or I know the Lord, but I need to follow Him in baptism. And I'm ready to take that next step. God, thank You. Thank You for speaking to us this morning. God, we give You all the glory and all the praise. You really are a perfect, loving, heavenly Father. So we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.